Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Well, welcome to GodPod number 54. Uh, this is a bit of a special GodPod, and it's a little bit different from normal. Um, what is the same as usual is that I'm joined by Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams, uh, but we have a couple of guests with us, um, and particularly special guests this time. One is uh, Miroslav Wolf. Uh, Miroslav is the director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, and he's the Henry B. Wright Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale University in uh, the United States. He's part of Yale Divinity School. And uh, we also have Professor David Ford, who is the Regis Professor of Divinity at Cambridge University. And they've joined us for a special God pod, which was part of, it was recorded as part of uh, the uh, Holy Spirit in the World Today conference, which was held at Holy Trinity Brompton on May the 20th and 21st, 2010. So uh, this is by way of introduction to that, and uh, we hope you enjoy this God pod. Well, we've got a, a number of questions, well, tons of questions. I think we're up to about 94 um, <laughs> questions. And it seems our normal record is about two or three on a, on a God pod. I'm not sure we're going to get terribly far with it, but we're going to have a go and uh, take on just a few of the questions, or at least some of the the most common questions that have come up uh, through the conference so far, and um, see where we go with them. Um, And the first is, um, it's it's about how how we refer to the Holy Spirit. Most most often in the course of the last couple of days, it's been commented on that most speakers have um, referred to the the Holy Spirit as a he, um, occasionally. Uh, Holy Spirit's been referred to as a she. And uh, so and there is this question around, uh, how should we refer to the Holy Spirit? Is there a sort of feminine element of the Holy Spirit? Is there something distinctive about a sort of male pronoun for the Holy Spirit? Or uh, are there advantages or disadvantages in actually wanting to kind of quite affirm uh, the sort of sense of the feminine in God through the use of the female pronoun for the Holy Spirit? So I don't know who wants to start with that one. Yeah, I've been volunteered. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as long as you keep the it out of it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I think I'd uh, I'd I'd be be fine uh, fine with it. Even even the it might function, but you have to be really really careful. I'm glad my my former teacher Jürgen Moltmann is not is not here, because he tends to like. Uh, the feminine pronouns use of the Holy Spirit uh, and to see Holy Spirit as a more kind of a feminine element uh, within or feminine person so to speak within the, within the Trinity I tend not to go that direction I tend to think that um, you could use feminine or masculine pronouns of, of just about either person all persons of the, of the Trinity I think God is beyond uh, beyond gender um, and I think we do well if we also vary our usage of pronouns of God uh, to, to describe God. I don't think that in determining the character of God, pronouns matter as much as do narratives of actions. And I think the character of God is primarily filled in, so to speak, for us through the narrative of divine action and then the pronouns themselves, I think, are less significant and play a lesser role than most people th- tend to think. 
That's really helpful, and I entirely agree. I think um, if I was going to choose feminine pronouns about one person, the Trinity, I'd um, use them about Jesus. The, a lot of the medieval mystics talked about Jesus, our mother, um, who feeds us from himself. Uh, and the Holy Spirit being the sort of self-effacing one, the vague one, I, I really would rather not use feminine pronouns about <laughs> If you're going to talk about... Do you not about... yourself as self-effacing? I don't, actually. <laughs> if you're going to talk about the powerful intervening feminine spirit, that's fine. But as Miroslav says, it's the, it's the narrative that goes with the, the pronoun that actually matters. I think it's narrative, certainly, but also image, isn't it? It's the sort of images that we use, particularly perhaps in liturgy and in worship, um, where there's a whole wealth of biblical images that we don't often use. um, And you've got them there for the spirit of um, brooding over creation. You've got the spirit of groaning. There are lots of kind of images that we don't use, some of which are masculine, some of which are feminine, some of which are... um, uh, natural phenomena Um, and perhaps drawing a bit more on the wealth of that um, the image resource would be be useful Thank you Um, There are quite a few questions addressed to you Miroslav after your talk yesterday fascinating talk on uh, globalisation and um, the spirit and the whole relationship between um, kind of religious exclusivism and and political pluralism and um, just one of them that um, came through was, was this one. Um, in the light of what you were saying yesterday, your paper, do you think the, nation, the, the, the notion of a Christian nation is theologically wrong? Um, should Christians pray for their nation to become a Christian nation? Is that a legitimate prayer? Or is that something Christians should not really pray for or hope for or look for? I think Christians should pray for all people to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I don't think that the idea of Christian nation is either biblical or theologically sound. I think that it kind of circumvents almost that which will happen eschatologically, um, a place where people from all nations, all tongues, will gather together. But the kind of unity that is presupposed in the concept of a Christian nation seems to me not to be uh, a given and seems to me not to be a kind of a this-worldly hope. And if it were to be realized, it entails, would entail um, too much of a management and suppression of the de facto existing differences. Um, that was the case even in the best, uh, in the most robust years of the Christendom. In today's world, I think it would be even a dangerous hope. So do you look back on Christendom as a bit of a disaster, a failed experiment, and how do you see it? Well, I'm not sure whether I look at it as a, as, as, as a, as a, as a disaster. I see it as a, as a one expression of 
you know, historical expression of how the Christian faith, uh, which Christian faith, uh, faith took. Uh, but I think that it did, did have its uh, did have its own inherent and important important dangers. Um, disaster would be too strong to say. I see the whole of history, um, including uh, individual churches that seem to look like very nice and pristine. If you look very carefully between the cracks. You'll see all sorts of stuff creeping and crawling there. Uh, you know, I'm a I'm a son of a uh, I'm a son of a Pentecostal ministry. You know, remember me talking about yesterday about the, about about, about uh, you know me observing speaking in tongues. Now I was one of those creepy crawly things in that church, <laughs> and there were creepy crawly things going on that, which I was observing uh, at the same time and observing. I think as as Jane pointed rightly, with the eyes of a 13 year old, right? Not sufficient not sufficient depth to it. But I think in, in all such circumstances, we, we live in a kind of a broken, uh, a bro- broken world. I think Christendom was also one expression of that. Um, I am, uh, you know, free church kind of a guy, and yeah. I don't think that's the best expression of what the Christian faith uh, ought to be about in terms of its own public embodiment. But, but you know this, um, that this is coming for us at a very particular time in our history in this country about the relationship between uh, public Christianity and uh, an increasingly secular state. So for us, it's a very, very pressing question. What kind of public involvement should the Christian faith have um, in in determining what kind of a nation this is going to be? Um, And it would be really interesting to hear what you feel about our particular situation, if you know know it well enough. Maybe David can also comment on it. Yeah, I, I'm not not sure that I know well enough uh, uh, your your situation. I certainly don't don't think that we should simply acquiesce to the kind of secular character of uh, either European uh, various European nations, the United States. You can see that uh, see that as well uh, coming coming along, notwithstanding the kind of the more robust presence of Christians in the in the public uh, in the public realm. I think we are irretrievably pluralistic. And I think we need to live with pluralism. Within the pluralism, we need to have a Christian voice heard. Uh, I'm very much for the for the public uh, public involvement within the framework of a pluralistic uh, environment in which we find ourselves. I'm not for retreat, retreat right? Uh, shaping of the public space, and for Christians, shaping of the public space will be with Christian values, with Christian norms. Hopefully, it's going to be. Uh, shaped Christically <laughs> and not simply with abstract notions of what might be kind of just and so forth, but it will be specifically uh, with Christian, Christian norms, which I hope then others will resonate with, embrace, carry on, and will form a, a common space together. <clears throat> I remember Leslie Newbegin <clears throat> responding to the very fashionable rejection of Christendom uh, you know, the, the Christendom church, church notion of the Constantinian church, uh, and responding with, I thought, the right sort of historical insight, which was, look, if you were the church at that time, you were being offered certain sorts of responsibility within the Roman Empire, and you knew that you know, it was ambivalent, ambiguous in all sorts of ways, but should you take on that responsibility of power or should you reject it and remain a sect, so to speak, you know, and, and, and be over against the powers? Now, I'm temperamentally, 
I mean, I am in a chair that was founded by Henry VIII. <laughs> <laughs> not that particular blue one you're not, sitting not on there. And I think my, my sense uh, as a theologian is always to try to discern what the right next thing is in a very particular history. Mm. I don't like sort of going by first principles. You know, the French Revolution way of doing things is you go back to first principles and create a purely rational structure and so forth. <clears throat> I don't think that is the right way to go about it. And I don't think it's the British way to go about it at all. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you know it, I mean, this country, I think, quite rightly resisted that sort of approach. And I, I, I'm very suspicious of attempts to rethink things from the ground up and not to discern, look, what are the gifts we've got from our history? How can they be transformed in appropriate ways? And, I mean, I happen to be in favor, on the whole, of some sort of established church in, in, in this country. And I think that it can be developed in a way that is going to be much better than trying to start from scratch, which I think would be far worse. You know, the package you're going to get in a, in a, in a secularist dominated, dominated uh, you know, uh, country is not going to preserve the things that a, a wise person would want to preserve in, in the British Constitution and so forth. Therefore, I'm a gradualist. I think you should go step by step. And you know, it's a matter of considerable discernment, you know, ju ju just what changes you should make. And certainly you shouldn't bring in vast principles, you know, that, that, that this or so is the right system to have. I think, I think that's right. And I think the sort of influence that we try to have as Christians within our nation, within the structures of our nation, um, must be by persuasion rather than by force. Uh, and you can, just as you can have the force of military force, which obviously we would reject as a way of advancing uh, our goals and the agenda of Christ and the kingdom. Uh, so you can have legislative force, so you can have force of votes, uh, and that I think is a form of tyranny as well. Um, so I think it's really important that we seek to persuade uh, and influence by persuasion uh, rather than by force of, of either of those kinds. Miroslav, you, you were saying how um, you thought we were irretrievably Pluralistic, And I guess there's another question there, which is to do with political pluralism and, and how, how desirable that is, given that um, you might argue that a state has to privilege some forms of the good over against others and uh, has to make some choices there, um, rather than being completely neutral about what form of the common good we, we, we adopt as a society. So um, I guess there's a question, you know, would a kind of principled pluralism sort of be, be, be better than a, a kind of open uh, sort of political pluralism in that way? Well, I, I distinguish between uh, a pluralism as a political project, right? Mm. And pluralism as a political project, I would not want to think of it as state as being simply neutral. Mm. Uh, I think a neutral state ends up being kind of a, 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 a on the most, for the most part, has tended to be a secular state, mm. assuming somehow that secularity is neutral with respect to religious uh, viewpoints. I think it has to be impartial toward all overarching interpretations of life. And therefore, it's not a mere neutrality of the state there, but impartiality, which is to say it can support uh, promote certain forms of uh, overarching interpretations of life, but it has to do so on equal on equal terms. Um, um, so, 
But I'm not sure whether that, that, that answers uh, your, your question, but it seems to me that that's, that's really the better way to go, and, and I'm quite unhappy about secularism. Right? Yes. So the position that I'm developing uh, is... Um, actually, the person who developed it uh, uh, qu- quite compellingly, in my judgment, is Nicholas Walterstorm in a number of his, his writings, um, uh, including one where he argues for this consocial position uh, in terms of liberal democracy. But I agree with David also that it's not, you, you can't kind of design these things uh, de novo. Uh, I think you have to start where, where you are, but even when you start where you are, you have to have a, some rough sense uh, as to where you might, be, you might be headed and how you might get there given the circumstances in which one finds oneself. And so that's why I said in my, in my talk, you know, these two conditions kind of are ideal type mm. conditions. Mm. Each individual setting will have its own characteristics uh, and you might move one or the other way depending on circumstances mm. in, which you, in which you are. I don't think it's a recipe for, for, for this country necessarily right away, right, to have something like American form of government. Let's change. I mean, this doesn't make sense. Jeez. For Croatia, for instance, it makes even less sense, right, which is overwhelmingly still a very Christian, a Christian country. Mm. So how does one embody there the question of impartiality of the state toward actors, various various actors, and the ability of all of them to shape our common common space uh, together. Yes, I, I think what we're in the middle of at the moment is not a religious society and not a secular society, but it's a complexly religious and secular society at the same time. And that means that we're in the middle of a set of negotiations, really. You know, if we're not settling it by force, it has to be settled by negotiation. And I think it's terribly important for the various uh, Christian bodies and other bodies who you know, have really strong understandings of how they want society to be shaped to be there in the public sphere doing so. And something like Theos, for example, Theos, you know, the, the, the group that's <coughs> working in this area at the moment, uh, you know, is, is a very good example of the sort of thinking that really, it seems to me, needs, need, needs to go on. And that... But we are also in the middle of a renegotiation of large parts of, of, this, of the settlement that we had when, for example, there were very few others than, than Christian religious groups around. And uh, you know, how, the, how Muslims are, you know, are integrated into, in, into this is a huge issue for Europe. And as I see it, it's being solved rather differently in different um, in different settings, you know, and, and you look at the traditional settings that there have been in Holland, in Germany, in Switzerland, in France, in Britain, in, uh, <coughs> in America, in Canada, in, in states in Canada, and they're all in the process of renegotiating this. I think it's a time of immense liveliness in trying to think through such things, and, <coughs> and there's also, uh, a, you know, th- th- there are some really interesting thinkers doing it as well. Um, both secular and religious. And I think one of the most important things in the outcome is going to be the sorts of alliances. There have to be alliances. You know, no one group is going to be able to dominate every, every, everyone else in this setting. But the sorts of alliances that there are going to be between certain sorts of Christians, certain sorts of Muslims, and certain sorts of humane secularists uh, over against uh, certain sorts of Christians I wouldn't want to be allied with, certain sorts of Muslims I wouldn't want to be allied with, and certain sorts of secularists I wouldn't want to be allied with. I think we're into alliance building of a sort, and, and we need the, the sort of understandings that can help to build those alliances. Coalitions, in other words. <laughs> um, to move on to another area, which, again, we touched on yesterday in um, the discussion with 
um, with Ryan and um, <coughs> Jürgen Mottman. Um, we talk, we've talked a fair bit in the last couple of days about um, the spirit as, as being about, about human flourishing, the spirit enabling human flourishing. And I guess the question is, what happens when human flourishing um, seems to conflict with the flourishing of the earth? Um, is there a, a, an ultimate conflict there? And uh, how does the spirit play in that, um, that apparent conflict, or possibly real conflict, between the, the, uh, the flourishing of human beings and the flourishing of the planet on which we live? I, I just, I think, want to state a, a kind of rather bold claim that I don't think it ever does. Ultimately, ultimately, I don't think one person's flourishing is ever at the expense of another person's because, uh, because of the way that God has made us. Because by uh, aligning ourselves with him, we are aligning ourselves with one another. By, uh, it, it's not as if flourishing is a cake and the more you get, the less I get. Interesting the way my mind works when it's looking for analogies, <laughs> particularly when not being given enough biscuits. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, I already ate mine. <laughs> I'll just keep them here for safekeeping. This is not going to um, work very well in an audio podcast, is it, really? <laughs> um, and, and I think you actually see that. Uh, you know, if you eat... <laughs> this is going to do a little, One of my little pet hobby horses is coming. But if you eat organic food, that is good for you as well as for the environment. It does mean you have less money to spend on other things. Um, but... It, by and large, that which is good for one part of creation is ultimately not going to be a conflict. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have difficult decisions to make and difficult compromises to make. But a lot of the sorts of decisions that we have to make, are we going to be green or are we going to allow air traffic to continue to uh, expand for the sake of our economy? Well, is that good for us, actually? Is that kind of economy sustainable? Is it actually going to, not going to pollute us? Uh, I think you have to look at the bigger picture and um, ultimately I don't think there's any conflict between those two, those things though in the short term there will be compromises and choices to be made I think it's interesting but, isn't it that, um, that it goes back to whether the Holy Spirit is he or she the Holy Spirit is also wind and fire um, the Holy Spirit is actually not entirely bound up with us human beings the Holy Spirit is the power through which in, um, through Jesus Christ all things come in, into being so actually um, it isn't for us to decide I don't think um, if, if the world is God's is, and the Holy Spirit is um, the source of all that is alive um, actually it's not our choice we, we, we may think we put ourselves first but we will be put down if we have to put ourselves first the whole time I think, um, I, mean, I, I, I suppose I, I agree I think it's very important for us to think then of and, and be clear and to re-examine the conceptions of human flourishing. And I think it's in that sense an echo of what you're, what you're saying. Um, um, I think one of, the, one of the major tasks before us is to, and I think Ron has uh, early in his, in his meditation, in his homily, has mentioned this um, also, it, it is to rethink uh, and to make plausible uh, an account of human flourishing that is Christic, 
uh, for us in its orientation. And I think that's a, that's a huge task given, uh, given preponderance of uh, really profoundly, I think, detrimental accounts of human flourishing that, that is carried on the wings of very powerful uh, means uh, today. Um, so uh, th that's one of the huge tasks before us. And then, of course, not just to formulate it, but even greater task is actually then to live it. Thank you. Well, one more uh, question or a little series of questions um, as, we, as we wrap up. One, um, and uh, I think, again, it's um, immediately directed at you, Miroslav. Um, you've had a lot of these, I'm afraid. Um, you've written quite a bit about forgiveness in your own life experience, background, and uh, the theology of that. And um, the question is, can you say something about the role of the Holy Spirit in forgiveness and reconciliation? David, when he made comments yesterday, I think he mentioned that, uh, that the whole domain of grace <laughs> has traditionally been uh, the domain of the Holy, Holy Spirit. Is it how it is that that which, to put it very simply, that which Christ has done for us becomes ours, becomes lived reality in us, how it is that that Christ uh, lives in us, in a sense, and is formed in us, Christ comes to live in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that sense, I see that the Holy Spirit is the power of forgiveness, is the condition of possibility of forgiveness. I think forgiveness, uh, as, as I think any other gift, is sort of either given by the power of this mysterious spirit or isn't given at all, or ends up being kind of a calculating endeavor. It's a gift. Forgiveness that I give to somebody else is a gift that is always already given to me. And it's out of this forgiveness already experienced and then given as a mode of existence is that I can forgive at all, that I can reconcile at all, that uh, that, that gift that I give is a divine gift given to others and not a mode of my own manipulating the others. I find that uh, more, we more we emphasize, so to speak, the spirituality of the practice of forgiveness, the more I retreat, so to speak, behind the divine agent in the act of forgiveness, the less likely I am to insult somebody by forgiving them, to misjudge or misuse the power of uh, forgiveness, more likely that person is to do what's most difficult for human beings to do, namely to repent. It was, it was very interesting in Rwanda at Christmas being in a community where it was a Christian community of survivors of the genocide who were wrestling with precisely these sorts of things and, of course, had found that there was no instant solution. You know, that the, the, it, it is not a matter of just simply asking the Holy Spirit to give you the gift of forgiving the, the Hutu for what happened to your family or yourself or whatever. Um, and that what... what I mean, many things impressed me there. It would take all morning to go into them. But the, 
one thing that became very clear was the importance in forgiveness of all levels of the self and the community. That, in other words, one of the things they had there was a weekly group counseling session when they, in the context of prayer and worship, shared their stories of what had happened, the things they were trying to come to terms with, and that this articulation of what they'd been through was one step on the way to, um, to coming towards something like forgiveness. They all knew that forgiveness was something that as Christians, those who were Christians, they weren't all, but, but most were, um, you know, they, they, they were called towards. But they were being, you know, you felt there was a, a realism about the complexity of handling a trauma that you can't just superficially say, oh, yes, I forgive you, mm-hmm. you know, when you know that you have been traumatized, that your grief, the levels of bitterness and resentment and what you've lost and so forth are still absolutely tangibly there. How do you cope with that? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and the only way, it seems to me, is to have a community that takes seriously every level of things, you know, the economic and the educational, as well as the psychological, as well as the spiritual and, you know, the, uh, I mean, how one lives one's, you know, explicitly Christian life. Uh, I fully agree. Um, my, my experience with forgiveness uh, it comes really fundamentally through my parents' uh, experience of living with it since I was one years old. My brother who was five was killed in an accident by a soldier Uh, and um, I was one then my parents, my mother told me, they independently decided we will forgive and they decided because in Ephesians it says forgive as God has forgiven you in Jesus Christ and so my mother said and so we did And then she added, it was the most difficult forgiveness that I've ever done. And it was most difficult, not as a single act, an echo, <laughs> what, what you're saying, but as a process into which she had to grow and which stayed with us, both in its beauty and in its difficulty throughout our lives as as kids and throughout her life but she did it in such an incredible way because uh, my, my uh, pardon me for taking a little bit of time my nanny i had a nanny at that time who was in charge of us and it didn't occur to me until i had my own kids to ask what was she doing um that it she allowed it to to happen my mother never mentioned with a single word that my nanny, who was the angel of my childhood, to whom I dedicated my first book, was in any way implicated in this. Such was the extent of my mother's forgiveness that I had to drag it out of her to describe what has happened. Now, that, that too was a very fought, hardly fought battle and fought just one addition against the community that too is possible right uh, because there were there were folks in that community who said who, who accused my parents of having done this or that and then God punishing them <laughs> by 
taking away their child, right? So, so it, was, it was a struggle with internal soul, with a community which would not understand for the beauty of Christ's, Christ's character, and it was absolutely extraordinary. This was the best gift that I have been given as a, 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 as a person uh, by my parents' example of struggle with a difficult situation. Yes, there's that very... Um Powerful distinction, I think it's C.S. Lewis makes, between excusing and forgiving, the two being very different things. And it, it highlights, I, I guess, that what's, what forgiveness is, that it, it's something that takes seriously what's happened in a way that excusing doesn't. Excusing says it doesn't really matter, there's nothing to forgive. Whereas forgiveness says, yes, there is something to forgive here. It, it, is, it does involve the healing of a, of a wound. Uh, and to that extent, if the Spirit is the healer, the one who brings healing to the creation, it seems to me that the Spirit has to be involved in that level of, uh, of reconciliation in a way that excusing is something uh, much lighter. I mean, J- Jane, just um, focusing it down a little bit more, I, there was just uh, one last um, question. There was, you, you were talking again early this morning about how, um, uh, how the rejection of the good of the other um, is... A, is the sin of, against the Holy Spirit. Um, but sometimes when somebody goes through great pain and suffering, it can be quite difficult to look on other people's flourishing and for it not to highlight what they feel is something they've missed, something they've lacked, and um, to deepen their own pain. Um, do you have any thoughts on how the Spirit might heal, bring healing, bring... Um, a new perspective to that kind of situation and enable the, the desire for other people's flourishing even when there's that level of pain? That's a very good question, isn't it? I mean, I've watched a very, very good friend of mine who longs to have children and can't, um, ex- experiencing the joy of others having children. And, and she cannot... Uh, I mean, she has to admit it's causing her pain. She's happy for them, but it's causing her real pain. And, we've, and there are so many examples like that. And I think um, all I can say is, it, 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 I mean, as, as David and Miroslav have said, it, it isn't easy. If it was easy, um, it wouldn't, we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit's help to do it. Mm. But I think it is, again, back to human flourishing. Um, what is it that we want to define us? Do we want to be the person whose whole life is defined by this thing that we lack? Or actually, do we want to be more than that? Do we want to be somebody defined by what we long for, what we see as drawing us? And so I think it is partly a decision about what kind of people we will let the Holy Spirit make us be, what kind of vision the Holy Spirit will draw us towards. Um, and, and learning how to rejoice for others is part of becoming the person we're meant to be, I think. That doesn't make it easy. That doesn't make it easy. Thank you very much. Well, every God pod has to come to an end at some point. So, sadly, we have um, run out of t- we actually run over time, in fact. But uh, just a very big thank you to uh, you, Miroslav, and David for joining us. And uh, also Mike and Jane, as always. And uh, for those of you listening to GodPod who are not here present in this room, we will, um, well, you'll have another one before too long. Thank you very much. That was GodPod. 
a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.